Um, I am excited about this elephant series. We've been uh, going for several weeks now, and I have uh, actually been just loving digging into the text, studying more, uh, really wrestling with this, having conversations with people outside of um, prepping, and just just really talking. And it, what it has done for me, and I don't know if it has done this for you, my hope is that it has, it has just continued to drive me back to the Scriptures. So instead of just asking, what do I think about this, or how do I feel about this, or what should I believe about this, I actually have to come back and say, what does the Word of God say about this, and, and how does that require me then to live? And so it's been a, a really challenging and challenging time. We have uh, tackled several topics so far. We've covered uh, the topic of religion. We've covered money. We've uh, talked about biblical interpretation. We've uh, even talked about the idea of uh, what we're going to be covering comes or consists of three categories, dogma, doctrine, and opinion. We talked about the difference between those three things to give us kind of a framework. And uh, each week we have been giving you the opportunity to text in questions. And we have said the goal is to answer those questions at the end of this series. We've been compiling that list um, and we will continue to do that. But I thought it would be interesting to at least tackle a few of those to start this morning. We have uh, given this number. Feel free to write it down. Some of you have asked me, do you know who texts in the questions? I do not. Okay, It just comes to a random. So if you've been like, oh shoot, he has my contact info, and if I text it, then he'll know that it was me. I, I do not. This just goes to a separate service, and so uh, we just see a number, but we do not know the contact information. So what I want to do is just answer a few of these questions right off the beginning about the Elephants series. These are actual questions that have come in. All right? First one, what do elephants eat? As uh, much as 660 pounds, I'm told, of grass, leaves, flowers, fruit, twigs, shrubs, bamboo, and bananas a day. If you were an elephant and lived in the zoo, your diet would look like that. Okay? That's uh, from a zoo nearby. How long do elephants live, was another question that was asked. You guys are really catching on to this texting thing. It's, it's, it is life-changing. Uh, typically 50 to 70 years. I was asked this question, Russ, can you outrun a stampede? The answer is no, I can't. I, it, would, it would crush me. All right. Uh, last but not least, elephant question for this week. How many human deaths are caused by elephants? I know some of you are having sleepless nights. You're worried about this. You're, you're stressing. So I did a little study. In the United States, on average, the number of deaths per year are 0.25. 0.25, yes. So don't lose too much sleep over it. That means, on average, every four years, one person in the United States dies from an elephant. Okay? Now, I think sometimes it does prove this point, though. We, we tend to fear certain animals just because either of their size or because of the stories we hear of them, like sharks being so dangerous or lions or leopards or the list goes on and on. Um, the greatest killer, believe it or not. Very good. we got a... Just a man of great intellect right up front. Mosquito. Across the world, three million people a year die of mosquitoes. 
malaria, typically, not just <laughs> puncture wounds or something, okay? Just in case you're wondering, people are starting to freak out even more, okay? So as, uh, as you can see, this texting thing has been monumental, it's been changing lives, and uh, I, did, I did want to at least present one from this last week that I found interesting and exciting. The rest, I'm hoping, I will answer during this uh, particular talk. But we, uh, last week, we started the talk on women's role in the church. What does that look like? This question came in, literal quote, Good God, what about Mary? Okay, now, here's what I'm interpreting that question to mean. Um, I was mentioning at one point the influence that uh, women have in the New Testament, and I did not mention Mary. So the question would be, why not Mary? Very simply, Mary is fairly obvious, and that's why I chose not to choose Mary. Mary was a substantial leader in the church. Obviously, she raised Jesus. Okay? That's big. James, a writer of Scripture, um, she was obviously very significant and influential in the church. So, my intent was to choose lesser known and still significant women within the New Testament to kind of speak into how is their voice heard in the New Testament and what did their leadership look like in the New Testament. All right? So uh, my hope is the rest of the elephant questions uh, concerning women will be answered uh, during this particular talk. I know that that's probably an audacious goal. That won't happen, but at least we'll... We'll start the dialogue. That's the intent. All right? Let me review a little bit of last week, just uh, for those of you that weren't here, but also, I think, again, to remind us of the framework that we looked at. Uh, We talked about the primary issue of women within their role in the church is the issues of voice and leadership. Where is their voice able to be heard or not able to be heard, and where does their leadership begin and end? What are the levels or the particular roles that they can Play and so what we did is we started to kind of frame a bit of a fra- uh, create a bit of a framework to help us think in terms of what is the narrative of scripture teaching. So just a quick summary: it's this. In the beginning, God created man and woman. He created them in absolute equality. He made them in the image of God. He declared them as good and very good. And so for the beginning, we see this uh, sense of equality between man and woman. At the end of all time, eternity, consummation of all things, the kingdom of God is established in all of its fullness. There will be equality between man and woman. Man and woman will be one in Christ. We spoke to the idea of Galatians. uh, Chapter 3, 25 to 28, speaks into this idea that there is neither male nor female, slave free, uh, Greek, Jew, um, etc., etc., right? And it's describing not just salvifically, but at the end of all time, um, there will be an equality between man and woman. And so the question then becomes, what about the middle? If the narrative is so clear that there is at the beginning of time and at the end of time this equality between men and women, why is that equality not lived out or expressed in its fullness here during the in-between? And so we spoke into that. Primarily, Genesis chapter 3 gives us the biggest indication of why that's not the case. In Genesis 3, uh, the fall happened. Many of you understand that the curse came down, sin entered the world. Part of that judgment was in Genesis chapter 3, 
And I'll quote the verse. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. We talked last week that the hierarchical ruling of a man over a woman is a product of sin and is a part of the curse, a part of the judgment that came down because of sin. So we further then created the framework by describing what do we see in the scriptures, what do we see in the narrative that gives us insight as to how women, how their voice was heard and how their leadership was played out. And there were three things we looked at. What women did in the corpus of Scripture, as you look throughout the Old and New Testament, they were significant participants. They had great voices. They were prophets. They were leaders. They were highly influential in the redemptive work of God through both Israel and in the church. The second was, what is the Spirit of God gifted women to do? It was the second kind of question we looked into We talked about spiritual gifts that God has given through the Spirit, gifts to both men and women of teaching, of leadership, uh, of all types of gifts. And he distributed them according to his will or desire, the text says. And uh, they are given to both men and women for the sake of the body, i.e. the church. So women have been gifted to use those gifts within the church. And then last but not least, what is our calling as kingdom people? And our calling is this, a little quote from, Boy, as much as possible we are to manifest now what will be true for the whole creation in the future. The idea that we just spoke to briefly is that our view of the future should shape our life in the present. That if we will be in that place, we must live into the reality of what will come. So that framework is, uh, again, just a reminder and is intended to give us uh, kind of a starting ground for the rest of this talk. What I want to do is highlight two different perspectives that are primarily found in the church related to the role of women. And then I'm going to try to answer two what-ifs. We talked last week about the big what-if kind of questions. Well, what about this or what about that? So I'm going to give two quick perspectives or ideas and then... Try to answer those two questions. All right? So, the first uh, particular view within the church, it's been the traditional view that has been held for a long time within the church, is complementarianism. How many of you are familiar with that particular term? Okay? Great. Twelve of you. It is the traditionalist or hierarchical view. It would be defined simply as this Complementarianism is the theological view held by some in Christianity that although men and women are created equal in their being and personhood, they are created to complement each other via different roles and responsibilities as manifested in marriage, family life, religious leadership, and elsewhere. It is rooted in more literal interpretations of the creation account and the roles of men and women presented in Scripture. It assigns leadership roles to men and support roles to women based on certain biblical passages. Let me uh, break that down by giving a couple little points. This means equal but created to complement. All right, that kind of idea, if you're a complementarian, you would understand or believe that men and women are created equal but created to complement, that roles differ and that the authority and leadership belongs to the man, and that if you're a complementarian, you tend to take a more biblicist view of Scripture. All right? What that translates, 
just so we understand, what that translates into for churches that hold that particular view or individuals that hold that view is this. This is how it fleshes out in church practice. Men tend to lead, women tend to support. There are defined roles where women can and cannot serve in the church. There's limited female leadership in the church. What I mean by that is women cannot be elders, deacons, or pastors, if you hold this particular view. And then uh, there's a diminished female voice in the church. Again, what I mean by that is um, you cannot, if you're a woman, preach or teach from up front or have authority over a man as you speak. All right? Now, there are certain concerns that this particular approach brings. I'm just going to highlight two quick concerns before we get into the next approach. First one is this, that uh, most people that are complementarian see the Genesis account as a prescription rather than a description. Okay? So let me explain it by this quote. McKnight says, Sadly, some think Genesis 3.16 is a prescription for the relationship of men and women for all time. Instead of a prescription, these two lines are a prediction of the fallen desire of fallen women and fallen men in a fallen condition in a fallen world. Fallen women yearn to dominate the man and fallen men yearn to dominate women. This verse in Genesis 3, in other words, predicts a struggle of fallen wills that don't, they don't prescribe how we are supposed to live. Okay? So one particular concern of mine would be that there are times when you hold this particular perspective that you would view Genesis as being a prescription that that is how it's supposed to be lived from now until it's changed again in eternity rather than a description of the tension and struggle between man and woman from now until eternity. Okay? Second one is this. There's the potential in complementarianism to read Scripture through the tradition of the church and its particular history rather than just reading it through the text. We talked last week how often there is a tension in all of us that we bring certain ideas to the text and then we read what we want out of the text. And there's a tendency, obviously, on both sides of this argument to, uh, to do that. So, what you have just seen is the pervading kind of thought as, as far as the role of women in the church throughout the history of the church. There has been, um, in traditional Western church, this has been the primary teaching and concept. All right? So what I want to do this morning is to kind of balance it by coming from the other perspective to start the dialogue. Okay? So again, this is intended to start dialogue. It's intended for us to see commonality and begin to wrestle with this together. And so I'm going to come from the other perspective. Since the pendulum is way over here, we'll try to bring it back to center a little bit. Okay? So here's the other side of the equation, biblical equality perspective, or otherwise known as egalitarianism. Egalitarianism within Christianity is based on a theological view that understands the Bible as teaching the fundamental equality of women and men of all racial and ethnic groups, all economic classes, and all age groups. Not only are all people equal before God in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home, the church, and the society. All right? My intent, as I described, is to kind of speak into this, but I want to do it 
in a, a different way, and that is by answering the what about questions. And I want to answer two, and that's all I have time for this morning, answer two what about questions. All right? First, uh, both of them are this. What about women remaining silent in the church? It's the number one question that is often asked. What about women remaining silent in the church? Second, what about the teaching that all elders are to be male? Okay? So I want to try to lean into those. Okay? Fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. Okay? First one. What about women remaining silent in the church? Here's the passage. 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. This is where we get this from. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. All right? That's Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35, at which lots of people say, there it is. End of discussion. Right? Nothing more to talk about. We've already reached the conclusion. Let's move on. Next elephant. All right? Let's, uh, let, me, let me come at it. <laughs> let me come at it from uh, a couple different perspectives. Okay, the first one is uh, a practical level. On a practical level, um, the question has to be asked, do we literally believe this? And I would say we don't. And the reason I would say we don't is because I know little to no churches that actually practice it. What I mean is, they practice limiting the voice of women in the church. Right? They practice saying you can't speak at certain times, certain places, in front of certain people. But if this was a view that was held, clearly in churches, from the moment you walk in to the moment you leave, silence. Right? But that's not what we practically believe. In fact... I was sitting upstairs just going over my talk right before as people were starting to come in and I heard lots of female voices, all right? So it's either we're in direct opposition to it or we understand it to be a little bit different than what Paul was communicating. The second is this, a biblical level. We have to address what this is saying biblically and I think we can look at it through this particular lens. By asking the question... If the Bible says this, why does it also say the opposite of this in the very exact same passage? Okay? So let me give you a couple examples. 1 Corinthians 11, 4 and 5. This is a passage that I often hear brought up about women. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Right Now, often people will go, well, having your head covered or not covered is cultural or not cultural. Right now, I could care less about that. What is interesting is, what does Paul say women are doing in the church with their head covered? Praying and prophesying. Last I checked, praying and prophesying require voices. All right? They require lack of silence, but actually speaking. So there is communication from women in the church three chapters before this particular statement. So let's go to the very chapter, chapter 14, and look at what it says. Chapter 14, verse 5 says this, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. Except for all you women. Right? Well, no. I mean, it's very clear what he says. Second, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters... 
When you come together, each of you, man and woman, has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, all requiring speech. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up, them speaking in the church for its betterment. 1 Corinthians 14.39, immediately following the section we just read at the beginning. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, to teach, to declare truth in the church, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So what we have here is, both practically and scripturally, either Paul was a little confused that right in the middle of all of his statement he says the women are to pray, prophesy, speak, in tongues, etc., a lot of voice, and then says right in the middle of it, remain silent. So, the question has to be asked, what did he really mean? So maybe to give us a little more light on this subject, we'll go to another passage that's brought up. 1 Timothy 2, 8-15. Okay? 1 Timothy 2, 8-15. It's up here on the screen. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I, want, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay? So, what we're going to do to kind of look at this passage is we're going to play a game. All right? The game is this. For today or not for today? Okay? What we're going to do is break down... We're going to break down the, uh, and isolate the commands in the passage. One of the things that I think is important to do whenever you're looking at Scripture is to figure out what are the commands. Paul is declaring certain things to be truth, and he commands them, right? But not the question has to be asked, do all commands, are all commands for all of time, or are there commands that are just for a season? Okay? So, we'll play a little game. For today or not for today. To put you under pressure, you can raise your hands. Okay? So, the first one. Is this command for today or not? Males should pray with their hands lifted up. That whenever men pray, you should pray with your hands lifted up. Is that for today? Raise your hand if you think it is. I would say it's not because I've seen most, if not all of you, pray with your hands down. Okay? So, I won't give any more answers, but from here on out, I'll just let you decide. Okay? Males should pray without anger or disputing. Raise your hand if you think that's a pretty good command for today. Excellent. Women should dress modestly. Okay? Some of you haven't thought yet, but join with us. Number four, women should not have elaborate hairstyles, wear gold or pearls or expensive clothing. <laughs> Men, choose carefully. <laughs> okay? All right? Uh, women should have good deeds. 
Next, women should be silent and quiet. <laughs> Next, women should not, have, not teach or have authority. Okay? So the question is, as Paul is addressing this, what does it mean for us? It's a question we have to ask. What is the scripture teaching us? And I will just say this, since I'm not giving all the answers, I'm just starting the dialogue. Let me say this. Whatever Paul meant by silence, he could not have meant to say that all women, for all time, in all contexts, are to remain silent in the church. I think it is profoundly, my opinion here, complete opinion, it's profoundly unbiblical to use silence passages to trump the overall narrative of Scripture and the truth of what women did, and how women are gifted. Alright, moving on to the second question. What about the teaching that all elders are to be male? Most of you, hopefully, are aware that uh, there's a passage in Titus and one in Timothy. In Titus it says this, An elder must be blameless, this is the NIV translation, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Next, Timothy. This is a longer section, but I think for the purpose of explaining it, we'll read the whole thing. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. He goes on to say, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the truths deep in the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So the question is asked, well, what about those two passages? Because they speak into this idea that in order to be an elder, you have to be a man. All right? So <clears throat> let me... Uh, answer that from a couple different perspectives. The first one is this. The overarching concept, in my opinion, of what this passage is saying is that elders are to be above reproach. So if you were going to kind of look at the passage, you would understand that the heading is, elders must be above reproach. Then the descriptors are to describe what above reproach looks like in a given context. Okay? So I'll define it by explaining a few other ideas behind that. The first one is this. There are two different lists given. There's a list given in Timothy and a list given in Titus. Okay? Two different lists. The lists are not identical. The lists are not the same. So it's not a, these are the 12 things you always have to have. But these are, again, pictures of what it looks like to be an elder in every given context. That's why, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but there's different requirements or recommendations in Crete than there are in Ephesus. Why? Because there's different people in Crete than in Ephesus. In fact, he calls the people of Crete lazy, drunken slobs, essentially. 
And he speaks to them much more relevantly with the issue of wine or drinking than he does in Timothy because he's speaking into a particular context. So the first thing to understand is that these are unique expressions with similarities, but they're intended to create a picture of what an elder looks like. So the second idea is this. These are intended to give pictures of what an elder is, not an exact match as to what an elder is. Okay? Now some of you might debate me on that. That's fine. It, I do not think this list, this is my opinion, I do not think this list is a list that is intended to be used for all of time and every box has to be checked off. Okay? Now, hang with me for a moment before you call me blasphemous. Okay? <clears throat> Let's just play a little game. Again, I like games. Jeff is uh, about to plant a church. We're hopefully, Lord willing, in the next little while, going to add another pastor or an elder who would be interested in planting another church in our area and beyond. So, when we start to look for candidates for this, it would be important for us to consider what an elder would look like, correct? If this list is a list for all of time, and we believe it to be a literal list, then we need to really consider our options, okay? For example, Jesus, let's say he applied for the job. Would he qualify? The answer is no. Paul, who described himself as a elder in the church, would he qualify? The answer is no. Here's why. Zero women men is not what the text says. It says one woman man. Now, some would say, well, no, no, no. That's, you're, you're just taking a little part of the phrase, right? Well, the same is true if you reverse it around, but we'll get back to that in a second. So, what about... If we have a pastor who has one wife, okay, one wife, perfect, let's hire him, correct? Incorrect. Why? Kids. Got to have kids, okay? Now the text says children. Not great at English, but that's plural. Plural means more than one. So a husband with one wife, one kid, eh -eh, can't do it. Two kids, yes, but another catch. They can't be too young and they can't be too old. Because the kids have to be believing, right? They can't be rebellious, they have to believe the faith. If they're too young, so like I'm not qualified, Evie's three, she hasn't yet committed to Jesus, okay? <laughs> She's not of age to make the decision. And if my kids are too old, they're out of the house. We have often said, well, they're no longer under a roof, no longer under authority. They can make decisions on their own. They could believe or not believe then, and it has no bearing on whether we're an elder. Okay? So the question has to be asked, did Paul intend, when he wrote this list, for us to be able to consider only married men with one wife and at least two kids between the ages of 8 and 17? Was that Paul's intention when he wrote this particular text? Or was he describing what, what it would look like to have a person be above reproach in a given context? It's a question that has to be asked as you continue the dialogue. Last little part is the whole one-woman-man phrase. The one-woman-man phrase. 
Now, it's a particular phrase. Okay, It's not just a word that uh, you can separate into three parts. It's one phrase called one woman man. Okay, That's what it is in the Greek. So here are a couple questions to ask when you consider that phrase. The first one is the first statement that Paul makes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, is this. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever, whoever, aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Whoever. If he was writing it and only meant men, he probably would have said something more along the lines of, any man who desires this, desires a good thing. Correct? If the exclusion of women was implied. The second thing, in the Greek, from 1 Timothy 3, 1-12 and Titus 1, 6-9, these two passages, there's not even one masculine pronoun in the Greek. Interesting thing to consider. Moving on. Romans 16, Paul says of Phoebe, we talked about this last week, that she is what? A deacon. A deacon. He describes her as a deacon in the church, a leader in the church. Now, in this particular passage, he describes deacons, correct? And he says they must have one wife. Either Paul is very confused, right? Or he also kind of believes that women can be in that role. All right? Last but not least, one woman man is a set phrase. Okay? Described that already. But it is bad hermeneutics to isolate a single word from a set phrase and elevate it as an independent requirement. And the only phrase that gets elevated to the independent requirement of that phrase, or the only word, is man, most often. Okay? So, question is asked, so what? So if we've talked about all this, now what do we do with it? And let me suggest this. Just a quick reminder of what we've covered so far. We looked at the framework of equality throughout the scriptures. We looked at the roles women played in this grand narrative or story. We looked at the empowering of women to use their gifts within the church. And then what we've just done is discussed some of the most problematic passages that kind of speak to why women's role should be limited. My encouragement to you in wrestling through what does the text say and how are we to interpret it, How are we to live? Let me encourage you with this. I believe we are called to lean into the teaching that best explains the story of Scripture. That's what I believe. We're called to live into the teaching that best explains the story of Scripture. Now, some of you, I know, want me to say, well, what is the church's position on this? Russ, what is your position on this? I know that you're wanting me to say that. Because at the very beginning of the series, you do remember me saying, what you will not hear from us is what is the church's position on this, or what is our particular position on this. Because in doing so, often people will just go, okay, well then that's mine too. What we want is you to wrestle with the text, with each other, dialogue, interact. So I will leave you with this statement. If you want to know how I feel about it, or how New Community feels about it, I would say, We are for whatever God's Spirit grants women gifts to do. Let's pray.